Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. How's this for an introduction? My next guest shot and killed Osama Bin Laden, has just released a brand new book, terrific book. It is called... The Operator, and this is Rob O'Neill. Hey, Rob, thanks so much for being back. Thank you for having me again, Michael. The uh, The book's great. You did not mail it in. Not that I think you would have, but, you know, you, you, you get a guy who's not been in the public spotlight before and through their life circumstances has a hell of a story to tell, and you get the impression that they didn't have a hand in writing the book, but that's not the case with yours, which is the highest praise I can offer it. Well, I do appreciate that. It's a, a heck of an experience, believe me. It's a it's a it's a great story, and it's a, a it's patriotic. It's middle of the aisle, and I think people are going to like it. Well, let's cut to the chase and get to the story that everybody wants to know. How do you drink a yard of beer without stopping? And what do you do about the <laughs> pocket of air at the bottom? Well, there's there's a key to it. You know, you know that big bubble at the bottom. They they're nice yeah. enough to put put four or five shots of whiskey in there first, then they fill it up with beer. But this is a this is a no joke evolution, and uh, the key is just you know like everything else, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and you watch the bubble, and as it gets there, you just start to slowly rotate it. But uh, you can't let it leave your lips because once you start spilling, it turns into uh, 
complete collusion, and they'll make you start again. you got to get it all in one drink. And what was the occasion for the yard in, as you call it? Well, the, uh, this is the next level. Uh, this is the elite SEAL team that you're at, and it's broken down into squadrons, and each squadron has a patch. And in order to get your patch, after you finish the really rigorous uh, selection course and then a probationary period, um, and you're, you're ready to go to war with a Tier 1 unit, in order to get your patch, the last step is at a big party called a yard-in party, and everyone's done it. Everybody does it once, and it's uh, – I mean, it's more fun than getting hazed, but it's it's uh, it's, it's quite an quite an ordeal. But uh, it's 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 a it's a welcoming it's into a brand new a brand new brotherhood. It's it's a it's a fun time. I got I got some great pictures of it. You were in the uh, the buds class uh, that was class two oh eight, twenty eight week long process, two hundred start and thirty three survive. I, I was thinking, among other things, while you were retracing your steps in BUDS training that, that I have spoken at. In fact, next year, I'm already scheduled to go back and speak at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, which is this spectacular historic property. And unbeknownst to a guy like me who's sitting on the beach is that there are guys like you a couple of hundred yards away really going through it. Yeah, it was amazing when I went through it because I didn't realize how close the Hotel Del was that when we go to a certain point getting beat either on the, uh, the sand or in the water or a combination of both, you would see these people on like maybe the vacation of their, their year. They love, and it's so amazing. They're having such a great time in paradise and you're getting tortured right next to them. And it, it's almost, if you go to Coronado and stick around on the beach long enough, you'll see it day or night. So everybody wants to know, how do you survive? Is it the physical? Is it the mental? You say it's a combination of both, but Rob, you, you say one thing, you know, for sure. You know which guys aren't going to cut it. Who are they? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to say who isn't because it always surprises you, but generally it's the big, tough guy, the loudmouth, the guy that know-it-all. He seems to be the guy that quits first. And, and that's a shame, too, because a lot of people that are intimidated get attached to someone like that as a leader, and then once the, the, the bully quits, people start to have self-doubt. As, like, well, if he can't do it, then I'm not good enough. And I never bought that, you know. Uh, part of the uh, way to make it is obviously stay positive, but but you can't quit. And 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 uh, some of the best advice that I got was um, if you, when you feel like quitting, which you will, don't quit now. Quit tomorrow, which is good advice. But also don't make any friends until about Wednesday morning of Hell Week because you're going to be surprised who quits, and you might feel like following. You're kind of you're kind of going to be on your own until then. I was really surprised to read uh, from Rob O'Neill in the new book, The Operator, that at the outset of you going down the, the SEAL road, you couldn't swim. Yeah. When I joined the Navy, it was on a whim, and a lot of circumstances were in there because I, I tried to join the Marine Corps, but he wasn't there, and the Navy guy was, and he talked me into SEALs um, because I, you know he needed quotas. He's just on shore duty, what he does, and then uh, I didn't know how to swim, but I was lucky to have five months in between the time that I joined till the time that I left, by luck again, ran into a good friend of mine who went on to swim in college at Notre Dame, and he said at the pool, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm going to be a SEAL. And he's like, not like that. You're not get back in. And he showed me a few things, but still, I mean, five months is not a lot of time to learn how to swim, especially considering there's college water polo players in the, uh, in the, in the pool at SEAL training. <laughs> Uh, a lot of folks want your advice who similarly dream of being a, a United States Navy SEAL. Some who will say to you, well, I'm getting ready. I'm already taking cold showers. And you say, that's nuts. That's ridiculous because you never 
you never get used to what we say is embrace the suck. Just when it comes there, embrace it. Don't try. Don't hurt yourself trying to get used to it. But they, the cold showers don't work at all. The way that I put it, if, you know, if uh, the way that I put it to a bunch of these young men that want to be seals, I was like, look, here's. Let me explain it to you. If I was going to kick you, if I told you I was going to kick you in your man parts in about thirty days, and in order to get ready for it, you had your buddy kick you there every single day. Until then, it's still going to suck when I do it. You don't get used to it, so take warm showers. Start now, as many as you can. I promise I, I will not give the operator all away for free. We want people to, to enjoy and, and purchase this book. But there was another vignette that struck home for me, which was uh, you've recently signed up, and you go to a bar, and I think there's, there's like a balcony, and you step out on the balcony, and you've got a beer in your hand, and it, it gets you momentarily jammed up with the law, and thank God for your brother's expired license. Do you mind telling that story? Because, yeah. because this is, here's, the, here's the kicker. You know, but for the, the fake ID or the expired ID, who knows? Bin Laden could still be out there. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it was, I, I've been using my brother's expired ID that I'm pretty sure I stole from him because I was only 20. When I uh, got to uh, SEAL Team 2, and my first night out, I, I'm used to Butte, Montana, where you can grab a beer and do whatever, go outside and hang out. But in Virginia Beach, they have very, very strict open container laws. And I walked out, and I, before I knew I was in a cop car, and I'm like, well, if I get an alcohol-related incident this soon, they're going to kick me out, so i gotta, I got to take a chance here. And I gave him my brother's ID. It, it didn't look like me, and it expired, but the cop didn't really look at it too hard, apparently gave it back. And then a few weeks later, my brother called me. He's like, why do I have an open container ticket? I've never even been to Virginia Beach. That's a great story. And he now <laughs> knows. Hey, uh, you participated in, uh, we, we all, of course, are interested in the mission, but not to sell Rob O'Neill short. You participated in, in 400 different missions. And one that you spent a lot of time talking about in the operator is well known to me and will be well known to my, my audience because they read the book or they heard my interview or somebody else's interview with, with Marcus. But you participated in the mission to try and, and recover uh, from Operation Red Wing, the uh, you know the lone survivor, the Luttrell story, um, and in it you reveal that it goes wrong, and of course word reaches stateside that there are problems overseas, and they involve the seals. And your was it your baby son or daughter who drops a bib? Yeah, my uh, the, the the snipers from Red Wings got compromised. They sent some seals up to try to help them. They got shot down killing everyone on the helicopter, and then they told us to go in, but they're not going to fly us in. So a bunch of us, including Army and Air Force and Marines, were walking up a hill, and 10 hours into the hike, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, man, did anybody call home Like before we came up here? And everyone's like, no, why? And we're like, well, our family's back home. All they know is a bunch of SEALs from Virginia just died, and they haven't heard from us. And back home, uh, my wife at the time had my daughter with her, who was one, and she was just consoling one of our friends, uh, Aaron, who had just lost her husband on the helicopter and uh, she didn't want to go home, but she had to, the kid was, she didn't want to go home because the Navy would be there to tell her that I was dead, but she did. And um, no one was there. So she's kind of relieved walking in the house, but my daughter dropped a bib in the front yard. My uh, wife didn't see it. And so she just kept going in and she's pacing around, but my neighbor saw it. And, and so he went to help her. He went and grabbed the bib, went up and rang the doorbell. But the problem is my neighbor, Ron worked with me and he was in his dress blues. So when she looked out to see who was there, she saw a Navy chief in his blues, and she's like, this is it. And she set my kid down 
and walked over to the front door and, and opened it. My, my neighbor, Ron, actually finished the story better. When he says, yeah, I, I said, you dropped this. She punched me in the face and closed the door. And that's, a, that's you can, I mean, you can imagine how you're, time. you can imagine how she'd have heart failure in just seeing the sight of him out the front door. Yeah. I'm surprised she didn't drop dead before answering it just for no news. Unbelievable. Hey, uh, another mission, the uh, the rescue of Richard Phillips. Everybody knows that story, the Maersk, Alabama. What I found most remarkable about this, if I have it right, is that 15 hours and 46 minutes after your beeper goes off, you, it's game on for you in that rescue. It's that quickly. And what were you, like landing on a jellyfish, right? Yeah, we, uh, we've been selling for a long time. We could be anywhere in the world in under 24 hours. Right. Uh, that we could, we could take off in under four hours with everybody and, and uh, get somewhere. We'd never done it. We trained it before, but it actually happened. I was on my birthday, Good Friday, April 10th, and my daughter's uh, uh, same daughter, who was four at this point, uh, her preschool. And we were eating cookies and tea, having tea, and all of a sudden the beeper goes off. I looked at it, and I, in between the kiss on the forehead – and time we're in the ocean with a full head count was 15 hours and 46 minutes. I started my watch the second the people went off, and then I stopped in the Indian Ocean. You, you are, before you leave the States, you go to a 7-Eleven, and you are standing in line, and there's a guy in front of you, and he's looking at USA Today, which has the Captain Phillips headline, and he mumbles <laughs> under his breath, Man, you you tell the story. What happens? And by the way, yeah, this, was, is Sirius, was, this is Sirius XM, so you can tell it as you choose. Outstanding. That's correct. Um, he was standing in front of me. I, I was getting cash, Copenhagen, and cigarettes. And uh, because, you know, I can, we don't know, never a perfect plan. We might not end up where we want in Africa. If we land somewhere semi permissive, I can buy my way to safety. Maybe I might be able to barter with the tobacco. That's my thoughts. But there's this guy in front of me taking his time. You find that USA Today with the headline about the Captain Phillips uh, capture, and he put it down on the counter and said, man, I sure wish someone would do something about this. And I tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around and I'm like, buddy, hurry up, pay for your shit, and we're going to do something about it. And we're, <laughs> we're staring at each other. And I'm like, I'm not even kidding. The NASA security timeline is squarely on you. Let's go, brother. And, and he that did. That is and the that greatest. Was in between, in between the <laughs> Another one. Rob, Rob, have you have you gone back and, and wondered about how it is that you were one of the the elite of the elite to be selected for this mission? You're, you're called with a lot of drama into a room and told, we have a line on Osama bin Laden. Yes, we. Uh, it was, again, again uh, very good timing because there was a lot of qualified guys that could have done it. But I happened to be one of the most experienced guys in that group. And they picked 23 of the guys out of that group that had had the most combat experience and the most qualifications as far as, um, uh, you know, breacher, um, sniper, things like that, because they want redundancy. If someone gets hurt or killed, someone else can do the, everyone else's job. And, uh, yeah, so we were picked. It was a complete honor because was, that was the best that we had to offer, and I was part of it. And I still am very proud that they picked me. And the guys there were just unbelievable. Best, best team I've ever seen assembled. I'm skipping lots of the details because I want people to read the brand new book, The Operator, by Robert O'Neill. But in the book, you discuss the training exercises on the full-scale replica that was built of of what was the Abbottabad compound. And I was surprised by something that you wrote. I was surprised that you had no idea what the interior would consist of. There was no way you could know. But that didn't worry you. Why? 
Well, it didn't worry me. I actually liked it better. I, I want to know what uh, the outside looks like, and I'd like to know the height of the walls and, and things like that, How you know how, where barriers and things are. But I don't want people to tell me there's this many men, this many women, this many children, because I'll figure that out when I get there. I don't want you to tell me you're going to go in the front door and there's going to be a hallway and this is the layout, because if it's not there, it throws everything off. I want to know what's, what's definite, and then when I get there, my team and I have the tactics to deal with the movements, with the angles and the speed. We know how to do it, and it's better to see it and react, respond, as opposed to anticipation, and then it doesn't happen, and it, it'll force you to try to rethink it, and that wastes time. You, you knew the stakes in this operation, the operation to go take out Osama bin Laden, and were put in a position of, of literally having to prepare on a particular day as if it was the last day of your life relative to family yes when we uh when we were leaving for uh, afghanistan to launch we had we had we had a few days left in our family but on the very last day on the way in uh that was that was a tough part because we were pretty i was pretty sure it was one way we're not going to come back um we're going to get shot down or blown up Um, uh, there's a myriad of things could happen and it's not in our favor that we're going to live we are going to kill bin laden but we're probably going to die with him so just leaving you know it's writing the letters to the kids, to the family, um, like writing a letter to the, not my seven-year-old, same daughter, um, but she was seven, write it to the 27-year-old. You know, I'm really sorry that I missed your wedding, and I know you were beautiful. Thanks for taking care of your sister and your mom, but this was noble, and we had to do it. And all that, and then even the last meal, the, the kids don't know it's a last meal. The kids are just, they think, you know, hey, we're at Chick-fil-A, it's going to be but then I have to leave, and they don't even know I'm leaving the country, let alone probably never coming home. And every member of the team uh, felt that way too, and it was it was a, a very a very uh, just a, a, it, it's I cool I hate to use that word, but it was very patriotic because we accepted it for what happened on nine eleven for the people who made the decision between staying in the tower at two hundred fifty degrees or jumping or the the passengers who took over flight ninety three and crashed into the ground to save lives they weren't supposed to fight we're here to fight this guy laughed about it we're going to go get him so it was it was just. To see my, the way my team acted in the same in the same state of mind, it was very professional. It was it was very. Um, I, I was just so proud of them. One act of extravagance on your way out of town. You were a a Navy E seven uh, wife, two kids, making roughly seventy five thousand dollars a year. The Prada sunglasses at three hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> are beyond your budget, but you figure what the hell. Well, yeah, I bought it because my thought process was, uh, you know, I, I'm an E7. I can't afford these, but I'm going to be dead soon in American Express can. So someone else can worry about the bill. So I bought the Prada sunglasses, and I wore them around just thinking I was cool. But then I figured, um, you know, nothing ever happens how it's supposed to happen. So if we live through the night in, in Bin Laden's house and need to steal a car to drive to the embassy in Islamabad, the sun's going to be up. And uh, I'm going to need sunglasses. So I, I carried them with me. I had a pair of Prada sunglasses in my pocket when I went into Bidlon's bedroom, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Right. From Sunglasses Hut back in the United States. <laughs> yeah, I bought, yeah, I bought them at the mall when I was buying going away presents for my kids. So, uh, yeah, they uh, went from there to Bidlon's bedroom. The mission itself was supposed to be a Saturday. It gets pushed to Sunday. We all know in retrospect, and you discuss it in your book, that moment when Seth Meyers is speaking at the White House Correspondents Association dinner and President Obama is sitting there with a you know big grin, laughing along with the bin Laden joke. 
quite a moment to look back on, isn't it, knowing what he must have been thinking at the time? Yeah, I was just very impressed because, I mean, Seth Myers is, is hilarious, and he's obviously just, you know, great jokes about everything. And he made that joke about, we can't even find Bin Laden. It turns out he has that show every day on C-SPAN, sort of giving a jab at Bin Laden, or at uh, C-SPAN, because he said no one watches it, and then uh, at the president. And the president, I mean, you know, to be in that, I'm assuming every every president has kind of a, you know a touch of arrogance to him to get to that high level. I'm just amazed that he could you know because I would have just said something about you, you you know guess what we're going to get him now, dude. But uh, he just sat there and smiled and, and just played it off and just just the, it, it would be hard to to hold in something for that that a moment where you can totally slam a professional comedian. But he did his poker face was incredible and uh, it's just a, it's an impressive thing to see knowing that we were gonna. We were going to show him up to the, the following day. At the at the penultimate moment, there are two guys who rush up that final staircase, and 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 guy number one uh, pulls back the curtain. Your guy number two, and and you fire the shots. Had it been predetermined that you would be or he would be that this was the way in a best case scenario that it would end, or was it happenstance? No, that's just again uh, how. Our tactics dictated the way that we moved because that what we were supposed to land initially on the rooftop and go right into uh, his bedroom from the balcony. But because the first helicopter crashed, which is the worst imaginable thing that could happen, we had to start from the outside and go in. Because you know, had we just done plan and plans for one certain way, we would have been kind of screwed. But because we let our, our tactics dictate, um, we just went in, went with our flow, and um, let it you know be as it may. And I just happened to get to that spot behind him. He just happened to get there, too, because of the tactics that we knew and had. Uh, I was just put in a spot watching a very brave man go forward, and I turned to the right. That's what my tactics did in order to cover his back. And I just did what every other SEAL, every other Ranger or Special Forces guy would have done. I went in there, I saw Bin Laden, he's a threat, and I shot him. Were you on autopilot, or was there a moment where you said to yourself, oh, my God, it is Bin Laden? I knew he'd be up there before we went up the stairs, and it wasn't autopilot, but it, it certainly wasn't bravery. It was more of um, uh, he's going to blow himself up, but we got to get up there, and I'm tired of thinking about it. Let's get it over with. Let's see what he does. And and uh, I followed the appointment up the stairs, and, and uh, it's um, that was that was it. That was the thought process, and it was over before he, I you know I only saw him for about a second. In less than a second, I aimed above the woman's right shoulder, pulled the trigger twice. Bin Laden's head split open, and he dropped. I put another bullet in his head, insurance. And that's the way it ended. That's exactly how it ended. It was fast. And the reason I shot him in the head that many times is uh, I've dealt with suicide bombers before, and there's stories there in the book. And when a suicide bomber, especially when he's that close, it is faster than you think, louder, scarier, and, com- and completely permanent. And, if, if, and it doesn't take them long to set it off. And you need to shoot them in the head and make it completely immobile as fast as you can. And that's why you, you got went- headshots. You went to Pakistan with a magazine that had 30 rounds in it. You came home with 27. I, I, I hope you'll tell the audience what, what you did with the magazine and what her response was. I made sure to, uh, I don't want to ruin the end because it's better to read it. I don't want to ruin it, but uh, I made sure that we got back. I talked to the point man, the guy who led me up the stairs. He kind of asked me what, uh, what um, did we, we debrief each other. And then he said, well, there she is, meaning the woman who found it a lot. He said, you got to go give her something because you own this. 
And so I walked over there, and uh, I handed her the magazine with 27, and I said, i got to show you something. And I actually walked her to Bin Laden. I don't want to ruin the surprise about what she said, but it wasn't, it wasn't correct in the movie. It's correct in the book. Okay, final question, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. I hope you can my tell from the, tone of, from the tone of my voice how, how thoroughly I enjoyed The Operator by Robert O'Neill. Are you guys all cool with one another? Because, you know, there have been other books written, and I'd, I'd hate to think that it's unsettled among the members of that elite SEAL team who took down bin Laden. Yeah, I think we are. Um, I, only, I only speak to a few of them, and the ones with whom I speak are already out. Um, the ones that are still in, the way that I describe it, and it had been described to me long before the Bin Laden raid, was uh, this place, this unit, is like, a, is like a, a freight train going 100 miles an hour. And as long as you're on it, you're, you're on it. But once you step off, it's going to keep going. And so as far as I know, a lot of guys are out there. Uh, they're, doing, they're still doing the mission, still doing the great job. The guys that are out are fine with me. Um, as far as the different stories, you know, and I've had years to think about it, um, I, don't, I mean, I'm, tell, I'm telling you what happened. This is what I saw. This is what happened. This is, by, and this book is the first one to be completely approved by the uh, Pentagon, so this is legit. Um, I really don't care because we got them. We know we got them. Like the pilots did more than I did, the, the, the air crew, the analysts. The, the team effort, I just happened to turn the correct corner to get them. But uh, as long as we got them, that's all I care about. Hey, Rob, I wish you all good things. Thank you so much for your service to the country. Thank you so much for killing bin Laden. And thank you for writing this book. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time. Thanks for everything. I really appreciate it. The book is titled The Operator, Firing the Shots That Killed Osama Bin Laden and My Years as a SEAL Team Warrior. Robert O'Neill, TC, is the author. Well, he is no BS. I, I left a lot of meat on the bone. I just want you to know that I feel a little bit guilty because there's so much there that I wanted to get into with him. I don't want to give it away. Michael, I want people you went to read the book. Yards and buds and Prada. And I know, but I'm telling you, there's a lot more there. There's a lot more there. Those nugget stories are pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, they make. You know, it's it's so funny. I'll often read a, a memoir. I'll often read an autobiography where we someone read that one has has. Well, but with this thought in mind, where someone has done something, and and you, you just kind of want to skip through. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really interested in your early life, and I, I really don't care about how you went from. A, this is me talking, not in this book. In this book, I wanted to know the whole path of of how he became what he became, and and ultimately how he pulled this off. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It is absolutely extraordinary. I'm, I'm fascinated by the Bud's training. I mean, I know when, when you interviewed Marcus Luttrell and had him in town, et cetera, hearing those stories is, boggles the mind just from a, from a pure fitness and mental toughness standpoint. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. 
I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.